Amen. Thank you. you. Maybe sit. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, any visitors here this morning? Please give me the pleasure of meeting you before you leave today. I'd love to meet you. <clears throat> before we get into uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, where we will continue our study this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the pew in front of you. If you reach underneath, you may find a Bible there. I encourage you to have a copy of the Word of God as we study the Word of God. That's why we are here this morning. Uh, Before we get into the study, you'll see a book back there that looks like this. Some of you have already received a copy of this. Uh, It's Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Um, For some reason, I don't remember why I received the case of these books uh, for free, and I wish that happened all the time, but it didn't, and I found it at the door, and so please feel free to take one. Uh, There's maybe like 40 copies left, one per family. Just uh, feel free to take one of those and enjoy it. I've gone through it, some of it, and it's good practical help for our prayer life. So we are continuing our study here in John chapter 10. Let me find my spot where I am. John chapter 10. As Brother Mike mentioned, uh, this is October, which some of us would consider to be Reformation Month, uh, with the 31st of October being Reformation Day. And we have the five solos of the Reformation Uh, Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Oftentimes when we consider the Reformers, we think of the Swiss Reformer John Calvin. From John Calvin, we obtain the term Calvinism. And we get the acronym TULIP, don't we? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Yet, there were reformers before Calvin who preached the same doctrines. Calvin was only eight years old when Luther nailed 95 Thesis to the door of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was October 31st, 1517. And others would follow Luther, such as Hugh Latimer and William Tyndale. And about a thousand years, roughly, before then was... Augustine, who was on the scene before the Reformers, and he preached the same doctrines that oftentimes are attributed to John Calvin. The point, the doctrines that are attributed to Calvin were taught before he even taught them. Total depravity, unconditional election, definite atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of saints, and the doctrine of reprobation were taught before Calvin. And after Calvin, by such men as John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, they all taught the doctrines of grace, as we call them. But before the Reformers, before the early church fathers, we find the doctrines of grace taught where we expect to find them, in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. As we have been studying John chapter 10, these doctrine, doctrinal truths have been emphasized by the Lord over and over. We, we can't ignore it. We've seen 
uh, election we have seen, particular redemption or a limited atonement, however you want to call it, we have seen it and we will see in our study uh, perseverance of the saints as well. We cannot ignore it. As George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist uh, since the canon of Scripture said, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught it to me. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, a Reformed Baptist whom multitudes and multitudes were saved under his ministry and we benefit from his ministry still today, he quipped this, There is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless you preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. So a careful study, excuse me, of chapter 10 will lead us to agree with Mr. Whitfield and Mr. Spurgeon. We have already seen these doctrines thus far in our study in the Gospel of John, specifically in John chapter 6, and specifically here in John chapter 10, and specifically election and particular redemption. But this morning we find ourselves in verse 22 of chapter 10 through verse 27. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Lord, again, I ask for your help this morning. Help me to be clear with your text, to be accurate. And please, O Lord, we pray that you would use it in a mighty way for the glory of Christ. Amen. So in verse 22 through 39, we have a follow-up of the discourse of verse 1 through 21. And we find ourselves uh, in the scripture where it speaks of the feast of dedication. That's where this is taking place. That is the event. I'll read a little bit about this just so we can get some understanding. We've looked at, we've studied various feasts. This one was not as important or was not as significant nationally uh, as the other feasts, perhaps. But it had to do with uh, the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabus in 165 B.C., after it was profaned by Antichos Epiphanes, who had sacrificed a pig to Jupiter on the altar of the temple. It was the last great deliverance that the Jews had known by Judas Maccabees. And therefore, it must have been in people's minds a symbol of their hope that God would again deliver his people. It was an occasion for gratitude to God, whose mercy had resulted in renewed opportunity for temple worship. And at that time, and at a time, as Josephus says, when a people scarcely dared to hope for it. In this present passage, John is presenting us 
with the last act in Jesus' public ministry and with the Jews' final rejection of all that he stood for. In some aspects, the passage is not unlike those in which Matthew and Luke recall that when the messengers of John the Baptist asked Jesus, Are you the one who was to come? He replied by pointing to the works that attested to his messiahship. All of all this may well be held to embody the great truths behind that feast of lights, wherein people recalled that the sovereign God, against all human probabilities, wrought deliverance for his people, brought them out of their darkness, and enabled them to offer real worship. That was from Leon Morris. So the use of lights and a celebratory atmosphere was similar to that of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we covered in John chapter 7. However, this Feast of Dedication, which lasted eight days, could be celebrated in one's home, in a local setting. A feast to be celebrated every year and still continues to be celebrated what today is known as Hanukkah. So this was the event, the Feast of Dedications. It took place in Jerusalem. The time was winter. John could have written this, the time of winter, so that those who were not familiar with the feast would know when this took place. So it was probably in mid-December. It was cold outside, and those around him had hearts that were cold inside. So we see the event, and we see the time, and we see the place, the temple, and the portico of Solomon. The winter weather may have contributed to Jesus' decision to go under this porch to be inside the temple area rather than in an open court. Solomon's porch or colonnade was a structure with a roof that was supported by pillars, which would have provided some shelter. It was on the east side of the temple, a place where scribes would often teach their classes, teach disciples. And the text tells us that Jesus was walking in there. It doesn't say necessarily that he went there to teach at that particular time, but nevertheless, this is what took place. So this sets the time and the scene and the place of where this was. And first, we have here the interaction of the angry and annoyed antagonists. The angry and annoyed antagonists, which we have seen before. This isn't the first time that they have sought to surround Jesus. Verse 24 The Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Why would they gather around Jesus? Were they genuinely interested in hearing what he had to say? Did they have a friendly disposition of a desire to be taught? Well, we've seen such scenarios before where they have gathered around him, or better stated, circled around Jesus. And verse 31 tells of their intentions. They, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So the, they, the stones were around. They were ready to stone him. They had a plan here of what they wanted to do. This was not new. The religious leaders had repeatedly tried to kill Jesus before, and the threat has not changed. Their approach here and asking Jesus to tell them plainly was once again a disingenuous approach. 
they did understand certain things. He was claiming to be the Messiah. That is why they wanted to try to kill him then and right now. So as they were asking him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. They were looking for a clear statement from Jesus so they could launch their attacks, so they could stone him to death right then and there. They were angry, they were annoyed, and they were hostile. They crowded around him. They hemmed him in. It is possible to understand their question as saying, why do you still annoy us? Why do you still plague us? Their belief of what or who the Messiah was going to be was erroneous. Many were looking for a political or military leader to assuage their oppression of being under Roman rule, rather than looking for the Messiah that was in their midst. They, under, they misunderstood who the Messiah was to be, so it makes sense why Jesus did not answer them plainly here. He identified himself elsewhere as the Messiah. In chapter 4, verse 26, when the woman at the well said, to, said that the Messiah is coming, Jesus responded, I who speak to you am he. So he has made it clear before, plain in speech, who he was. And his disciples responded him in, to him in chapter 6, verse 69. Peter said, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Since those who were surrounding him had erroneous ideas of the Messiah, to answer with a yes or a no would not have benefited him, would not have been benefited anyone one bit. Jesus instead answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. He taught many in the synagogues before in Capernaum. Some understood him to be the Christ and followed him and would continue to follow him. He also said to many, truly, truly, I say to you, before I was born, before Abraham was born, excuse me, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. His teaching was clear. He identified himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the bread of life, the light of the world. He claimed to be sent from heaven. He took the divine name, I am. These teachings were enough for his disciples to understand he was the Christ. Why wouldn't the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders believe? They knew the Old Testament better than anyone, better than any common man. Why would they not believe? They had enough information to believe that it was him. And Jesus says to them, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The miracles that he had already done. The first sign, water into wine at the wedding of Cana. The second, healing the nobleman's son. The third, healing the lame man in John chapter 5. The fourth, feeding the multitude. The fifth, walking on water. The sixth, healing the man born blind. And the seventh, which we'll cover in John chapter 11, which has not happened yet in this context, the raising of Lazarus. Some of th these signs that he performed either were fulfillments 
of prophecies that pointed to the Messiah? Or they all pointed and exclaimed and proclaimed and bore witness that Jesus is the Christ. The religious leaders had all they needed to see, all they needed to hear. They had all the evidence laid out before them. They had the miracles, the signs. They had what the words of Jesus Christ. They knew the Old Testament scriptures and they still would not believe. Consider that application for us this morning in evangelism. No matter how often or what we may say or how good our arguments may be. If God does not open their eyes, if God does not change their hearts, they will not believe. Again, I say, let that free you up in evangelism. God is a sovereign God. God is going to save who he is going to save. We are just called to be faithful in the proclamation of his word. They had everything that they needed, but their hearts were hard. and They would not believe because they could not believe. Our second point, they had a darkened and depraved disposition. A darkened and depraved disposition. Jesus says to them, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. This word but here, this is a strong contrast. Why did they not believe? Because, or for this reason, Because he said, you are not of my sheep. What has Jesus said before about his sheep uh, in John chapter 10? I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. In contrast, he says to those who are opposing him, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Richard Phillips puts it like this. Jesus insists that their unbelief was caused by their not being his sheep. Unbelief is not the cause of man's separation from God, but the result and mark of man's separation from God. They did not believe because their nature was darkened and hardened in total depravity. Jesus is saying to them, you are not of my sheep. In other words, he's saying, you are unregenerate. You are darkened. You are depraved. They would not believe because they had the spiritual inability, not the ability to believe. This leads us to the doctrine of reprobation. It's not a popular doctrine, but when we consider the doctrine of the election, of election, The other side to the doctrine of election is the doctrine of reprobation. It can be one that is not necessarily hard to understand, but it is indeed hard to swallow. Nevertheless, the scripture teaches it, and we must, and we do, find it here in John chapter 10. Since God has chosen and elected some, then we must conclude that he has not chosen some and has passed over them. He has left them in their sin. Louis Burkhoff defines reprobation as the eternal decree of God, whereby he has determined to pass some men by with the operations of his special grace and to punish them for their sins. 
to the manifestation of his justice. In Matthew chapter 11, I'll read it for us this morning. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. Jesus speaking, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So Jesus is praising the Lord, his, his Father, that, that God has hidden things from certain ones and has revealed them to certain ones. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we see it right there. But does that stop Jesus from calling men to himself? No. Right after Jesus says that, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We find reprobation also taught in Romans chapter 9. I encourage you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he, being God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So we see it there in Romans chapter 9. We also see it in Romans 11 verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking has it not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And God hardens with sovereign judicial hardening. We see that with Pharaoh. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And if we consider the doctrine of reprobation and the doctrine of election, that God chooses some from before the foundation of the world, that God calls some with the effectual call, and he passes over others. And we say, well, that's not fair, and I have a problem with the doctrine of reprobation. 
Well, consider the fact that he would even save any of us. All we have to do is look into our own heart and examine our heart for 30 seconds and see who we really are. And it should not bother us any longer. Oh, how loving it is that Christ would save any one of us here. How Christ would save a wretch like me. Those who have been in the study Wednesday night, studying the order of salvation, this makes sense to us as we consider predestination, election, the effectual call and regeneration. Jesus says to them who were right there before him, you are not of my sheep. Jesus has made similar statements in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 43 and 44. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Were they deaf that they could not hear his word? Physically speaking, no. Spiritually speaking, they were deaf because they could not hear his word. He says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. But I speak because I speak the truth. You do not believe in me, he says. And then in verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. He is saying similar things to those who are standing before him here in John chapter 10, verse 22 through 25. These parallel exactly what he is saying here. This is an indictment on those who were standing before him. Let me read for you um, from the Reformation Study Bible. I would encourage you. Uh, to look into getting a study Bible, to get the Reformation Study Bible. You can find it on Ligonier. At time they have sales, you can get hardcover, you can get softcover, you can get leather this, you can get cow leather this. There's all kinds that you can get. Mostly the, the ESV translation, uh, I believe, is the one they have. They may have the New King James as well. But if you're going to get a study Bible, I recommend uh, the Reformation Study Bible. And it says this. Reprobation is the, is the name given to God's eternal decision regarding those sinners whom he has not chosen for life. In not choosing them for life, God has determined not to change them. They will continue in sin and finally will be judged for what they have done. In some cases, God may further remove the restraining influences that keep a person from the extremes of disobedience. This abandonment called hardening is itself a penalty for sins. They go on. Reprobation is taught in the Bible, but as a doctrine, its bearing on Christian behavior is indirect. God's decree of election is secret. Which persons are elect and which are reprobate will not be revealed before the judgment. Until that time, God's command is that the call to repent and believe be preached to everyone. We do not know who the elect are, We do not know who the reprobate are. We are to proclaim the gospel 
to all. So we see there is an angry and annoyed antagonist standing before him. They had darkened and depraved dispositions. And then we have the salvation of his sheep, the salvation of his sheep in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here is another contrast between those who are called and those who are not, between the elect and the non-elect. Why do the sheep hear his voice? By the effectual call. Again, as we have been studying this out, this is familiar to us. We can, uh, familiar to us on Wednesdays, the order salutis. We keep going back to one text, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. The effectual call defined when God summons the appointed to eternal life. When he calls that person with the divine summons and they respond in saving faith and repentance. In chapter 8, verse 28 of Romans, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called, there's the effectual call, called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. His sheep hear because God gives them the capacity to hear his voice. Christ calls each of his sheep individually. It's an individual summons and an irresistible summons. The sheep hear his voice because they are his sheep. And that does not exclude the responsibility of man to respond. Perhaps this morning even, God is knocking on the door of your heart as it, as it is said, or he is piercing your heart this morning. He is speaking to your heart this morning saying, turn to me, repent of your sin. Do not ignore that this morning. Run to him. Bow the knee to Christ. The sheep will hear the call and will respond to the shepherd and be drawn to him. There are so many false shepherds in this world today calling us, seeking to call us out, saying you must do this, you must be conformed here, you must do this there, you must do this to be a good citizen in society, you must uh, conform to this to to be good over here, and you must do this, and even Christians would fall into such teachings as the world seeks to draw us in to magnetize us to itself and to draw us away from Christ how much more should we be doubling and tripling down in the word of God and the means of grace how much more should we be connected to the local church and not drifting or coasting drifting or coasting is what apostasy brings and what it will ultimately lead to Man, we need the gospel more now, it seems, than ever. His sheep will hear the call and will respond. And he says, Jesus says, I know them. One may expect the scripture to say there that 
that they know him. But it says here, Jesus says, and I know them. I know the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. He knows his sheep. His sheep know him. Oftentimes you talk to people in evangelism, you talk about Jesus, say, yeah, yeah, I know him, I know him. Does Christ know you this morning? Does Christ know you? There are those who think emphatically that Jesus knows them and that they know Jesus, but he does not know them. In Matthew 26, I invite you to turn there as well. In Matthew 26, in verse 31, Jesus announces his second coming in glory. To judge, verse 26, 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. As I read a different portion of Scripture from, um, I meant to say 25, forgive me. 2531. But in God's sovereignty, we needed to hear that. So I trust him at that. Matthew 25 and verse 31. Yesterday, we went to the Deerfield Fair. And there was, you. most of you have been there before. I don't need to explain it to you. But as we walked through and we're looking at the animals, there were sheep and there were goat and they were not together. They were separate. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And going down to verse 46. So some go into the kingdom prepared for them and the others who denied him. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
And then Matthew 7, I've referenced many times, no need to turn there. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Many emphatically believe that they know the Lord, but do not. They may think the Lord knows them, but he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. So the questions we must ask ourselves, is there ongoing evidence in our life of God's sanctifying work? Do you have fruit in keeping with genuine repentance and faith? Is your profession of faith credible, evidenced, proven by your fruit? 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to test ourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. In 2 Peter 1.10, break, excuse me, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and choosing you, his calling and choosing you. And then we would ask, do we know and love the scriptures? Do we desire to grow in holiness? Or is our life marked by worldliness? Jesus says, they hear my voice and they take an action. They follow me. They hear my voice and they follow me. To follow Christ is to take action. People do not coast into the kingdom of God. If you're coasting, you may very well be drifting from Christ. Jesus calls all to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Do not assume you're on the narrow path, on the way to life, if you are drifting. To follow Christ is to follow the ways of the Good Shepherd to deny the ways of the false shepherds, to turn away from the ways of the false shepherds of this world. To follow Christ is to deny self, to take up our cross, and to follow after him. To follow Christ is to obey Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. John Flavel says this, Birds feed upon seeds, swine upon the root, bee upon the flower. According to their nature, so is their food. Sensual men feed on sensual things. Worldly men feed on worldly things. As your food is, so are you. If a carnal comforts, if carnal comforts can content your heart, be sure then that you have a carnal heart. So there were angry and annoyed antagonists before Jesus. When someone is hostile towards the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed they are at times angry with God, but worse yet, God is angry with the wicked. Those who are opposed to Christ have a darkened and depraved disposition. 
but he offers salvation. Salvation to his sheep. And as we consider the doctrine of election, we consider the doctrine of reprobation. How thankful we ought to be that he saves us and he calls us, he redeems us, he changes us, and he holds us fast. Consider these things, and I'll give you more to consider as we transition to our communion this morning, to the Lord's table. I'll minister uh, the devotional for you, and then I will step down and minister the communion for us this morning. Let us go to prayer and consider these things that have been said, and consider preparing our hearts further for the Lord's table. Father, we seek to honor you this morning. We're here to worship you, Lord. But perhaps our hearts are taken away by things of this world. Perhaps we are distracted. Perhaps some of us have sin that is weighing us down that needs to be cut off, that needs to be cast away right now, at this moment. Lord, perhaps there's someone here who need to be saved, who need to be changed, who need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the one who went to the cross to save sinners and died on the cross and rose again on the third day and calls all to come to himself for the change of their hearts and for everlasting life. We pray that, Lord, you would save sinners who do not know you this morning in this place. And, Lord, for those of us in here who know you, as we consider these doctrines that come out of the texts for us, that you chose some, that you passed over some And we consider this morning those of us in here who know you. And you know, Lord, how thankful we ought to be. How diligent we ought to be in the means of grace that you have provided for us. Thank you in your loving kindness that you have changed us. Lord, Have our hearts be fixated upon the things of you as we consider the Lord's table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.